Welcome to the Remarkable Relationship Show with Mercy Russell, where we find the wonder in your story. I will be your host for the next hour. I have over 35 years of experience applying the science of relationship systems to my practice of psychotherapy and leadership consulting. My intuitive skills allow me to bring clarity and vision to your challenges. I hope you will be surprised in the next hour. This is Mercy Russell with the Remarkable Relationship Show. My goal is to bring a fresh perspective to you on all things related to how humans develop their individual brilliance while navigating the excitement, stickiness, and resistance in their relationships. In my 40 years of working as a psychotherapist and consultant, I have been continually amazed at the ways in which people overcome challenges. I hope to share my experience and insights today so you can find magic in your relationships. So today, my guest is Dr. Julie Pham. Um, She is more than a community organizer. She's more than a community activist. She's more than a community consultant. She's a scholar of communities. And I think she has, is, brings a very interesting and unique perspective on how people can work together in diverse groups. So today we're going to be talking about how relationships with her family and community have shaped her life and work. She is the author of a recently released book, Seven Forms of Respect, A Guide to Transforming Your Communication and Relationships at Work, which we will be discussing later in the show. So Dr. Julie, I'm going to just read her bio and then we'll dive in. Dr. Julie Pham is the founder and the CEO of Curiosity Based, an organizational development firm based in Seattle. She is the author of the number one Amazon new release and bestseller, Seven Forms of Respect, a guide to transforming your communication and relationships at work. Dr. Pham has been recognized with numerous awards for her community leadership. She has applied her community building approach to building strong, collaborative, and curious teams. Julie was born in Saigon, Vietnam and raised in Seattle. Dr. Pham earned her PhD in history at Cambridge University as a Gates Cambridge Scholar. And she graduated magna cum laude from the University of California, Berkeley as a Haas Scholar. She earned her real life MBA by running her family's Vietnamese language newspaper during the 2008 to 2010 recession. She has worked as a journalist, historian, university lecturer, marketer, nonprofit executive, and management consultant. So, um, Julie, um, let's dive in. Um, I really would like you to start by telling us about your family's experience coming to the United States, your, your family's story, and how it set you up for your career and your return to Seattle. Marcy, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to be on your show. I'm really excited to be here with you t- uh, this morning. So I, uh, I came to the U.S. with my parents as a two-month-old baby. We came as boat people from Vietnam. My father had served in the South Vietnamese military, and then after the war ended, he was sentenced to a communist, uh, a communist prison camp for three years. 
And so after that experience, he was just, we need to leave. Uh, and so that has been a really big influence on my on my world, on my worldview. So we came to really for to, just yeah. could you just for a moment, yeah. I want to explain to the audience because um, I uh, am old enough so that I was uh, I was in college during mm -hmm. the Vietnam War. But much of our audience is a lot younger. Can you explain to them how you immigrated? There were people who got on planes. Your family did not get on a plane. Yes. Can yes. you explain that difference to us? Yes. So, uh, so after the war ended in 1975, there was the, the fall of Saigon and some people were able to be airlifted out of the country. Mm -hmm. uh, and those people usually had much, uh, much more connections. And actually, we were supposed to leave uh, by boat. And my father had saved, served in the Navy, but we weren't able to get the family together in time to be able to leave uh, once Saigon fell. And then, uh, and then for basically a decade afterwards, there were waves and waves of, of boat people. And so for boat people, that means that we actually escaped by boat illegally. And it was very dangerous. My family was actually, uh, we were the first ones in the family to leave. And my, my aunts and uncles tried to leave the week after and they were caught. And so uh, many people were caught, many people tried again and again. And then uh, later on, once there was enough of a refugee community, we were able to actually sponsor families to come over. And there was also a, uh, there was also the, um, uh, a law that was passed that allowed for, uh, a US law that allowed for people who were um, uh, South Vietnamese who were who served in these prison camps to actually come to the U.S. legally and to, to sponsor their families. How old were you when your family was on the boat? I was two months old, so I don't oh, remember anything. Old. Okay. Yes. Great. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that. So, <laughs> so your family came and they, and they came directly to Seattle? We came directly to Seattle, landed in Seattle, and then went to Florida uh, and my dad, that's where the sponsor was. And my dad said that he walked around for a weekend and realized he couldn't stay there. And so he borrowed money to come back to mm -hmm. Seattle, uh, where there was a, a, a very welcoming Vietnamese community. And Marcy, I actually want to explain something. A lot of people think that the term boat people is derogatory. Mm -hmm. They hear, oh, boat right. people, that's a, mm -hmm. and, and actually within the Vietnamese community, boat people, being a boat person is a, a source of pride. Because like, we, we escaped. <laughs> right? right and right. and that was that took a lot of courage uh and and so it was a difference in perspectives of how I, uh, for sometimes when i talk to americans um about the war it's it's oh we're so sorry what we did to your country and then i have to explain you know we were fighting together right we were on the uh -huh. same side <laughs> and, right. and there's a reason why we we left vietnam and so um and that we, we don't see ourselves as victims Mm -hmm. Well, that's really important perspective, right? I think it's um, really important for people to hear that. Um, and so when your family came, then what did they do in Seattle? How did they um, establish themselves? So my, my parents tried to do, I mean, deliver newspapers, deliver pizzas, <laughs> go, uh, went back to school. I have two younger brothers who were born in, uh, in Tacoma, Washington. So my, my mom actually wasn't able to finish her degree. They had actually both met in law school um, in, in Vietnam and they mm -hmm. knew they wouldn't be able to practice law uh, in, in the US. And so my dad actually went back to study engineering 
and he got his uh, engineering degree. And, and then in the mid 1980s, the Vietnamese community was really growing in Seattle and also just throughout the US. And so they saw a need for a newspaper. And uh, there was actually a big, there was a big Vietnamese newspaper in Southern California where that's the, actually the largest population of Vietnamese in the US. And so my parents decided to start a newspaper to serve the growing Vietnamese community. And my dad eventually left his job once he was financially able to do so. And so I grew up, um, I grew up with this, with this newspaper. And I think I like to think of it as my parents were hustlers among hustlers, um, mm -hmm. serving entrepreneurs, serving a very entrepreneurial uh, community. Um, so how, how did, so as a child, you were watching all of this mm -hmm. and you, you then took on, you stepped into what we call an educational pathway that was really, um, not surprisingly ambitious, right? Mm -hmm. And really quite very high achieving. Can you tell us, I'd just like to hear a little bit more about what your experience was watching your parents and then thinking about who you were as, you know, as, an, as, a, as a Vietnamese woman, as an American, how did you, how were you formulating who you were gonna be? Growing up, I, there, as a child, there's just things that we, by intuition, it's like, okay, I do this at school, I do this at home. Mm -hmm. And it's not like I was able to articulate that. And it wasn't until later on as an adult where I realized like, oh, this is, there are just different ways to communicate different expectations around how we treat one another. And so actually my parents wanted me to be a lawyer. <laughs> and so when I went to college, I thought that's what I was going to do. And it wasn't really until I got to college, did I start to learn about, did I start to get more curious actually about about their experience and about the experience of our community. So even though I grew up with the newspaper, it was just felt like a backdrop. And it wasn't until I started to study it formally and started to actually interview many South Vietnamese uh, military veterans, did I understand and really appreciate the different perspectives. Um, mm -hmm. Because quite honestly, when I was in college, I was first learning about the Vietnam War the way Americans saw it. Mm -hmm. And as it being between right. Vietnam, Vietnamese and Americans and the Vietnamese were de facto the North Vietnamese and the South Vietnamese weren't the real authentic Vietnamese. And so then I would talk to my dad and, to, and his friends. It was like, oh, there's a different perspective. And so in that, I mean, I, I chose to study history because I realized that there's so many different, it's actually just about learning those different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And it's not that there is a right or wrong. There's just difference. Right. So this was in your undergraduate work? That this you was in doing? my undergraduate work. And then wow. I decided uh, when I was a senior, uh, there was an opportunity, a new scholarship had opened up uh, uh, for with the possibility of, of studying at Cambridge. And so, and that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to get my PhD in history. And I really thought I was going to be an academic. Mm -hmm. I really, I really believe that my path was to go and help and to be a historian to help people see these different perspectives. And so, and so then I, for the, all of, for the next decade, essentially all of my twenties, mm -hmm. I worked towards getting this PhD and doing this, this research. And, uh, and I then realized that I actually, as I was finishing my dissertation, I realized I didn't want to stay in academia mm -hmm. and I done all the things that academics are supposed to do. I published, I taught, I managed an academic journal, 
And I realized I didn't want to stay in academia. And I realized I wanted to go into business. And so, yeah. (laughs) That's a big shift. Yeah, it was a big shift. And it was- you were you went to Berkeley after Cambridge? Is that correct? no? I went to Berkeley first. So or Berkeley, you went to and Berkeley then Cambridge first. You yeah, went to mm-hmm. there first, right? Yeah, and then just mention, t- tell us a little bit about your research. This is yeah. You know. So so my for my master's, I studied British colonialism in Burma, and then oh. and the bureaucrats, and and then I realized I wasn't going to be able to learn Burmese because it's a very difficult language. And so then I started. Then my my PhD was a a study of a South Vietnamese communist revolutionary, a Jen mm-hmm. Munzo. He actually led the 1945 revolution in Saigon. And so I did a, I wrote a biography about him and I was actually able to interview him 16 times before he passed away. Wow. So, mm-hmm. um, and so, and then again, that was a very different perspective, right? Cause then right. I was studying the communist perspective and, uh-huh. uh, and, and I just, I just, the kind of history that I studied was actually those who I was very interested in the way history is written. Mm-hmm. So not just about the actors, but also okay. the actors as historians, mm-hmm. because actually that, that figure became a leading communist historian. Right. Oh, mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. So much there in terms of the, even the narratives that we create, which is, I think what you stumbled on initially, right. Was mm-hmm. that this, this story you were learning, hearing in history, which is supposed to be objective and academic, didn't match. Yeah, or your your experience or your family's perspective, and yeah, I think that that's that's to me that's really fascinating. Um, so tell, so you decided not to stay in academia. We could go on about that, but mm-hmm. and so you decided to go back to Seattle. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes, I decided to go back to Seattle. It was two thousand. It was the end of two thousand eight, and I. My brother asked, hey, can you help out with the newspaper? My brother was working at the newspaper at the time. And I realized that I wanted to spend time with my parents as adults. Mm-hmm. And I knew that if I spent that time working in the family newspaper, I would never regret it later on. Right. And so that's what I did. I came back to Seattle and I got my real life MBA <laughs> by working at the newspaper. Yeah. I had to learn how to sell, how to market, how to raise money, all of these things that as an academic, I had no idea uh-huh, how to do. Right. And um and though I think as an acad, I think what I'm good at is learning mm-hmm. the confidence of, well, I don't know how to do this, but I will learn how to do this. But I'll figure it out. I'll learn mm-hmm. how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that interests me, so I'm going to ask you a little bit about it, was this experience of coming back and relating to your parents as, a, as an adult. Mm-hmm. I, to, I think this is really critical in adult development. This, this, it's a big transition going from feeling like a child or acting, which people sometimes do their whole adult Mm -hmm. lives. They never actually establish that. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that. A huge change was by then I spoke Vietnamese. So growing up, I actually didn't speak Vietnamese. I was a latchkey kid. It was a period of assimilation. And so when I lived in Vietnam and I did my academic research, I learned Vietnamese. And so that was a huge shift in our relationship too. And so I went from only speaking English to speaking in Vietnamese and also editing my father's, my parents' English emails and realizing mm-hmm. how limited their English was. And also appreciating how charismatic they were mm-hmm. to be able to communicate despite limited English. 
And so it helped me deepen, Uh have a whole new appreciation from what my parents were able to achieve once I also understood what it was like to learn another language. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. So. Yeah, I I have this experience. I I lived in France for a year and studied French and in an area where not many people spoke English. And I am, when I meet someone with an accent, I'm, oh, you know, I'm always talking to them about their English and how they learned it and what an accomplishment it is. Because we, as Americans, take that for granted. We just expect that people will pick it up without knowing what the process is like. So Julie, it's time for us to take a break. Um, This is Mercy Russell with The Remarkable Relationship Show. My guest today is Dr. Julie Pham. And when we come back, we'll be talking about how she um, dove into the community in Seattle. Um, She's the author of a book, Seven Forms of Respect, which we'll get to talk about later in the show. Thank you. Alternative Talk 1150. We're on your radio at 1150 a.m. We're on your HD radio at 98.9 Channel 3. So many ways to listen. We're on the web at 1150kknw.com. Streaming live audio and video as well as MP3 archives of many of our shows. So many ways to listen. And now, we're on your smartphone or tablet. Download our free app in the Apple App Store or Google Play and take Alternative Talk 1150 anywhere you go. So many ways to listen. Hi, tune in to my new show, The Remarkable Relationship Show, with me, Mercy Russell. I bring a fresh perspective on all things related to how humans develop their individual brilliance while navigating the excitement, stickiness, and resistance in their relationships. Wednesdays from 9 to 10 a.m., and you can visit my website at leadershipwithmercy.com. When I was in Iraq, our convoy was hit. It was bad. After I came home, I could still hear booms and see tracer fire. Makes it hard to be a good mom. As America's veterans face challenges, DAV is there. I'm Naomi Mathis, Air Force veteran. With the right support, more veterans can reach victories great and small. With help from DAV, I was able to begin to heal. DAV provides a lifetime of support to veterans of every generation, helping more than a million veterans each year. Today, I'm part of DAV. We're veterans helping veterans to get the benefits they've earned. And I give my veterans my all. But there's more to be done and more victories to be won. My victory is being able to be here for my children. Naomi Mathis, thank you for your service. May your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Get your daily dose of variety. Alternative Talk, 1150. Good morning. This is Mercy Russell with a Remarkable Relationship Show, and I'm here today with Dr. Julie Pham, the author of uh, a newly released book, Seven Forms of Respect. And today we're talking about her background as um, a Vietnamese-American woman. And um, is that appropriate to say yes. about you? Okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> I yes that's how I, I describe myself. Yes. Yeah. Um, so we've just been talking about her experience, her family's experience and her experience and her, uh, you know, sort of education and her interests and then coming back to live with her parents, uh, not live with them, but to work with them in their family business with a, a Vietnamese language newspaper. Um, so 
you and I in the break started talking about your experience in your family business, but I'd like to for you to talk more about that. And then, as you said, you started, you kind of were getting your MBA, working mm-hmm. there, learning everything on the ground that um, that, a, that a business person would need to know. But then you you continue to take that further mm-hmm. from your family's business. So could you tell us more about that? So yes, the, the, the real life MBA, this was where I, so when I came back to Seattle, it was 2008, this was the start of the worldwide recession and the start also the decline of newspapers, print newspapers everywhere. And so this newspaper had put three kids through college and now it was, we were, it, it, we were just, what is this? And are we ever going to recover? It was a really dark time actually. And, um, and learning how to get really scrappy, actually. Mm -hmm. So I, so coming back, I was just, well, I, I need to learn how to do business. And the, I want to do this through getting mentors. So I actually started to get mentors to get business mentors. And, and I also got pulled into a lot of volunteering. Because being someone who is bicultural, bilingual, uh, in an area where at the time the newspaper was located in the area where I was doing a lot of work was the it was uh, the most diverse zip code in the country nine eight one one eight, and so mm-hmm. uh, so people started pulling me into leadership roles and mercy it was really hard in the beginning because this was I went from academia which is very mm-hmm. solitary, right, <laughs> very very mm-hmm. solitary to working with people to collaborating with people and I had to work through people, right. To get things done. And, and I started to, I started to talk to other owners of, of ethnic media outlets and realizing we all had the same struggle and even actually mainstream newspapers and mainstream media outlet too, all had the same struggle. Just like, how do we, how do we get through this? Uh, This is a really dark time. And so realizing that if we pull our, uh, pull our resources and our connections, we could do more together. And, um, and so this is, that was the start of the real life MBA of learning how to do partnerships, learning how to sell. Uh, mm-hmm. Mercy, I remember the first time I talked to an ad agency and they were asking me all these questions and I had no idea how to answer. And when I got off the phone, I was just, <laughs> I'm really bad at this, <laughs> but in two years I'll get good. And I did, <laughs> you know, I did. Um, yeah. And so that was, and, and I think the, one of the big things I learned was community building and working, motivating people who had really no financial incentive to be together, right. working with a lot of volunteers. I got pulled onto these boards, these nonprofit boards. And I really think of those as my, my special, um, my special courses, my, mm-hmm. the, the, and and I learned how to, I learned that when bringing people together from very different backgrounds, there's going to be friction that emerges that mm-hmm. comes from just misunderstanding and miscommunication. I ended up creating a coalition of ethnic media outlets where we had 25 different organizations. We represented Russian, um, Spanish speaking, mm-hmm. Mandarin, um, um, Somali, all of these different orgs and there was friction that would come up mm-hmm. even though we all meant well but you know it's just like I didn't like the way that they said that mm-hmm. or can you believe they did that mm-hmm. 
And I had to learn how to navigate that. And there are many times where I was the one making the major mistake. Uh There were definitely times where I, I was the one who had certain expectations and I was coming in and just, I had to learn how to build relationships because that was something that I didn't need to do as an academic. Right. This is uh, something that's always interested me. I um, went to social work school in Los Angeles in the 80s and um, that at UCLA. And there was a lot of emphasis, a lot of, you know, in my program for um, working with, um, I think I took the course in working with Asian American, you know, people from Asia, people from Latinos and African-Americans, right? Mm -hmm. Which, um, I mean, you know, this was quite a long time ago. So, um, and at the time, you know, for me, I'm from New England, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> a is a, you know, and the West Coast, Seattle, similar, huge melting pot of people from all over the Pacific theater, never mind the rest of the world. And one thing that stood out to me and that I have had a very hard time actually communicating when I've gone back into the, you know, when I went back to Vermont, for example, was the fact that we were so, those of us who are um, sort of white Americans are so, um, uh, we have so, we blinders, we think it's that we, we just aren't aware of the fact that called these differences exist among all cultures Mm -hmm. it's not unique to us now obviously the role of white people in the world is a different topic but it's not we it isn't the only difference you Mm -hmm. know not white it's so many others and that was really brought home to me because we really needed to understand that then when we were working with people that they're the Samoans and the Filipinos have a thing, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, the, and so this is, this was a really, this is something I think most people really aren't aware of in terms and, but it was such a, um, what would you say? It was such a, um, a, an important learning space for you in your mm-hmm. experience was beginning to be with all with these people, with all these differences that are really innocent, right? Mm-hmm. They're not about the other person. They're really just about the worldview of the person that you're that the of the two people. Yes, there's just it comes down to our we all have expectations, right? We can't help it. We all have expectations, and um, and we might not even realize that those expectations are not universal, right? Or be aware of them Mm -hmm. because they're so. I mean, this is what happened when I lived in France for a year. Is I just I didn't even understand my bias. Mm-hmm. until I ran into walls right and realized you know I, I didn't realize I had a, an American accent <laughs> yes <laughs> I thought I spoke English right, right. and they, they British had an accent right and it was just it's that kind of blinder I've always really loved it when I've had that sort of perception broken through but at any rate this I'm sure that was a really exciting time when so I you, Mm-hmm. I'll just say when I was a, when I was an undergrad at Berkeley, there was something called the International House where there are all the international students. Uh-huh. And then when I got to Cambridge and I always when I was an undergrad, I'm like, oh, those are the international students. And then when I got to Cambridge, I was like, I'm an international student. <laughs> now, <laughs> I'm, I'm a foreigner here. Right. Right. 
So yeah, I could tell more stories about mm-hmm. that. Insurance. But let's go on. And so you were sort of working with your family's newspaper and then immersed all of a sudden. I mean, not whatever, mm-hmm. not all of a sudden, but you know, pretty quickly into these this sort of very rich community. But then you also took another turn mm-hmm. into going to work for Microsoft. Yes. So then after working at the newspaper for three years, I realized that I was working with eight people. Half of them had the same last name as me and I needed Uh to move to a bigger organization so I could continue to learn. And so then I started networking and I was able to network my way into into Microsoft and then into another tech company um, doing marketing. And then I spent the next nine years in tech. Uh, essentially. And, um, and that was another language too. That was another world Absolutely. going from newspaper, going from academia, going from to academia that. to then a newspaper, <laughs> right? A print right. newspaper that serves a small niche audience to Microsoft was like, w- all of those worlds were so, so different. Each time I had to learn to, uh, to adjust and because in each place there were the different expectations, different language, and, uh, and so, yeah, that's the, so then I made that. And then, um, and then the, my last job, I was at a nonprofit that advocated on behalf of the tech industry. It's the best mm-hmm. job I ever had, best job I ever had. And, and then I decided in the middle of the pandemic to leave it, to start my own company. Uh, and the only reason why I would leave the best job I ever had was because I realized at that point, I, I wanted to do something on my own. And, you know, I think growing up with entrepreneurs mm-hmm. who served entrepreneurs, I think that my risk tolerance was a lot higher. And my, I think so much of, so much of my worldview is shaped by a desire for freedom. And that goes back to mm-hmm. what my parents fled Vietnam for. Right, right. Would you say your impetus to work, to go in, to develop your own, your own business um, was really motivated more by wanting to be independent or by your particular mission in your business? Well, how would I, you? Yeah, I think, Marcy, that's a great question. I think it was a bit both. So one of the things that I was working on um, at, at my last org was to, uh, to facilitate and foster cross-sector collaboration. So I'd bring together people from tech government, community-based organizations, and some Mm -hmm. even, uh, I even worked with um, labor unions too. So people from very different backgrounds, very Mm -hmm. different approaches to the way that we work and see the approach community building. And I was so fascinated by that. I was so fascinated by how do you collaborate across difference? And what I found was it came down to practicing curiosity. Those who were able to do well were those who were able to, to practice curiosity. And so I, I realized that that's what I want to do full time. Mm-hmm. I want to help people practice curiosity in the world, starting in the workplace, because that's where we actually spend most of our waking hours. So is what you're referring to is that the individuals in these, um, in these mixed groups, meaning mm-hmm. mixed from different industries, mm-hmm. frameworks, um, who who did the best were people who were curious about others as opposed to um, just sort of um, wanting to promote or persuade from mm-hmm. their own point of view. 
So they were the ones who were, so in, um, in the work, I, I would organize these teams. So, and say, Hey, you have a few months to, you have six months to learn, learn about the community, figure out what you want to do, build a project together. You have very limited resources and then go build that. And, and so there were those who were so focused on a particular outcome. Mm-hmm. They weren't curious about any, any other possible outcomes. They were like, this is what we need to achieve. This is what success looks like. And then there were people on that same team who were just, oh my gosh, I'm learning so much. I'm trying new things. I didn't know this. I didn't know that. Like, look at what we're developing. Oh, it's not what we thought we were going to develop. That's okay. Right. It's still going to have impact. And so those people, the latter were able to, at the end, feel so much better Mm -hmm. and happy about what they were doing versus those who were just, I didn't, we didn't do what we set out to do. Uh huh. You know, and so it wasn't so much about promoting. It was more of like they had a very fixed mindset about mm-hmm. what what success looks like, and if they didn't right. get that, then they were disappointed. Mm-hmm. Versus those who were more open to look at all we've learned along the way, look at all these new relationships we built, and look at I am surprising myself. I didn't even know I could even think this or do this. Mm-hmm. Whereas others. There were some people who, if the, those who are very outcomes focused, they were just, I'm good at this thing. And I want us to get to this ac- accomplishment, this outcome as fast as possible. So I'm going to do the thing I'm already good at. I don't want to learn anything else. Mm-hmm. I want to do the thing I'm already good at. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, boy, I understand that. I remember as a young professional getting to the point where I felt like I was really on my feet. I was licensed and I was comfortable mm-hmm. because I knew I thought I knew what I was doing and I remember making a distinct choice to walk into a situation where I wasn't comfortable mm-hmm. co-leading a group of uh, adjudicated sex offenders mm-hmm. <laughs> and I remember wow. this thing of realizing that some of my colleagues were going to stay in that space forever they were going to stay right where they were comfortable once they got there mm-hmm. instead of putting themselves in a situation where they just had to learn step back and be a learner again um, Now we have about a minute or two before the break, but do you think curiosity is something that can be learned? Yes. So a lot of, a lot of people think of curiosity as a trait. I actually think that as a practice Uh that I liken to meditation, it looks easy, but it's really hard to be still. Mm -hmm. Right. And so with curiosity and practicing curiosity, there are going to be days where it's harder to practice curiosity than other days. If I'm feeling angry and upset and resentful, it's going to be pretty hard for me to be open-minded. So part of that is right. kind of accepting that. So learning how to practice curiosity is learning to forgive myself too. Like that right. there are going to be times where I'm just feeling a certain way. Right. So, but then right. that doesn't mean that I shouldn't do it and that right. I shouldn't try. Yeah. So, I, I um, think so I, think I do think it, important. and I think the other thing is for, People, once if they can practice curiosity, which also I boil it down to increasing self-awareness, building relationships across difference and communicating clearly. If they can practice curiosity, which is in part just, I don't know, and I want to learn, mm-hmm. it can be contagious because other people are like, oh, they're okay with not knowing. <laughs> right. Maybe I can, and especially the leaders, if a uh-huh. leader in a group does that, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, yeah. they're, the leader is giving permission to other people. Right. To not know and to be mm-hmm. learning. 
Mm-hmm. Julie, we're going to take a break now. And when we come back, I want to dive into your book okay. and hear Thanks. more about that, how you came to it. And I just want people to hear about it. Uh, this is Mercy Russell with the Remarkable Relationship Show. My guest today is Dr. Julie Pham. After the break, we'll be back to continue our conversation. Every year, Steve Faircal climbs the stairs at the John Hancock Center in Chicago, 94 floors to the top. It's called the hustle up the Hancock. It's hard to believe when you watch Steve today that a few years ago, his lungs were failing and he was fighting to survive. For eight hours a day, someone was pounding on my chest to try and keep my lungs clear. I honestly don't think I had more than a couple weeks to live. That's when Steve received the gift of life, a double lung transplant made possible by an organ donor. After I got my new lungs, I started doing things that I had never been able to do. I never knew that breathing could feel this good. Steve climbs to honor his donor and to raise awareness for organ, eye, and tissue donation. Wouldn't you like that when you left this beautiful planet that you could save a few lives on your way out? It's an incredible gift. Imagine what you could make possible by leaving behind the gift of life. Learn more and sign up as an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Go to organdonor.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources, and Services Administration. Hi, tune in to my new show, The Remarkable Relationship Show, with me, Mercy Russell. I bring a fresh perspective on all things related to how humans develop their individual brilliance while navigating the excitement, stickiness, and resistance in their relationships. Wednesdays from 9 to 10 a.m. And you can visit my website at leadershipwithmercy.com. It's time that you are heard, and I don't mean in just a conversation. I mean really heard. Imagine hosting your very own radio program on Alternative Talk 1150. Talk about being heard. Call 425-653-1150 right now to learn how affordable it can be to host your own radio show. Time slots are going fast, so take hold of this chance by dialing 425-653-1150. Alternative Talk, we have an opportunity waiting just for you. Multicultural, multidimensional even. Alternative Talk 1150. And here we are. My Mercy Russell with a Remarkable Relationship show. I was um, getting excited about what I was saying. <laughs> so anyway, we're here with jo- Dr. Julie Pham today. We've been talking about um, her work, her career um, in Seattle as a community builder and a Vietnamese American woman. And right now we're gonna talk about her recently released book, Seven Forms of Respect. So Julie, tell us. Okay, so here, by the way, this is the cover of the book. And <laughs> so uh-huh. uh, Seven Forms of Respect, it, it, it was influenced by my personal experience as being Vietnamese growing up in the US and having lived in the UK, Germany, France, and Vietnam. Um, It was also influenced by my community building experience, all of what I talked about, those people coming together and little frictions emerging and just, uh, why do they treat me? Why do they say that? And then, and seeing that, I actually then started to get curious, like, huh, well, how do people want to be treated? And so then I started to do formal research and I started to do focus groups and interviews and, and questionnaires and ask people, how do you want to be treated? Especially, how do you want to be treated at work? What are your expectations? And Mercy, what people kept saying was respect. I want to be respected. Mm. And I was like, huh, okay, well, what does this word respect mean to you? What does it look like? And that's when I saw people had different ideas 
of respect. They would describe respect differently. And so that's when it's just like, okay, there are different, there are different ways, different kinds of respect. And, and I started to dig deeper and, uh, and you know, a lot of times when people talk about respect, they bring up the golden rule, right? Treat, right, people, which is, uh-huh. treat people the way that you want to be treated. And so then it was just, well, what if people don't want to be treated the way you want to be treated? Mm-hmm. Right. And then there's the platinum rule, which is treat people the way they want to be treated. The problem is there is what if they don't tell you or what if it changes? Mm-hmm. And so then I have what I call the rubber band rule. And so in the rubber band rule, what it, sh- what it reflects is we are actually, here's a rubber band. <laughs> we're actually <laughs> able to be pretty, we're able to stretch. Actually, we're able to stretch and to accommodate other people. I think Mercy likes this. I can do that. Okay, mm-hmm. well, I'll, 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 mm-hmm. I'll give uh, Mercy respect in this way. Over time, though, what happens is people, they, uh, if we do things that we don't like to do because we're trying to be respectful, then what can happen is we will actually get so uncomfortable that we will snap and break like Uh a rubber band. And so what's important to know is what are my breaking points? What are the things that are going to make me snap? What are the behaviors that are going to make me snap? And um, and so that's why I call it the rubber band rule. It's actually about self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And so the seven forms of respect is really a practice in curiosity. And, you know, I think I mentioned that curiosity, it's about increasing self-awareness, building relationships and communicating clearly. And those are the three elements. And so for the seven forms of respect, it's a, it's a way for people to spark conversations. It's not about what do I want? It's about, let me share what I want and let me share why. And I want to oh. understand your why. Because people remember stories. Right. They, you know, they remember stories. They're not going to go around and, and um, oh, okay, Mercy likes this and this. Okay, I have to just remember that. But Mercy, if you share with me why, I'll remember that more. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also, here's the thing. It's res- the, in, in my research, what I realized is respect is dynamic. It's relative. Mm-hmm. It's subjective. It's personal, right? It's contradictory too. Mm -hmm. And yet we talk about respect as if it's fixed, as if it's universal. And we just say, I need you to respect me. Well, I am respecting you. No, you're Mm -hmm. not. Yes, Mm -hmm. I am. And we kind of go back and forth on that. And so that's why the book is, um, it's more like five level languages, not seven habits of highly effective people. Uh Uh-huh. That's one of the big misconceptions. People think, oh, you're going to tell me how to be respectful. No, I actually think you already know how to be respectful, but maybe Mm -hmm. you don't know how to describe how you want to get respect. And this can help you articulate that. Right. Or help others Mm -hmm. communicate to you how they want to be respected. Exactly. Because they may not even know that that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Right. They might not know. They might say, you know, in their own thinking or understanding, they may not understand that it's really the just the, the problem is that they're not feeling respected. They might think, oh, that person's wrong or um, make a judgment about them. <clears throat> but if I'm aware how important respect is and that there's a disconnect here, then I can open a conversation to find out what they what works for them or what, what they need to hear. Mm-hmm. Can there's- you talk? Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I just, I draw a difference between oftentimes when we're not getting respect in the ways that we want, we feel disrespected. 
Right. And I actually think that there's a difference between disrespect and lack of respect. Talk, talk about that. So disrespect is intentional. I know you want this. I know you care about punctuality. So, but I'm going to be late because I'm actually intentionally trying to disrespect you. But if I don't know that you care about that, then it could, it's a lack of respect in the ways that matter to me and that there's a difference. And oftentimes we go around feeling people are disrespecting us. And I say like disrespect actually is intentional and lack of respect is they didn't know you didn't have the conversation or maybe they didn't understand why you prioritize it. Why is it important to you? And once they understand, then that can at least open up the conversation of, can I give you respect in the forms that matter to you? Or does the situation call for something else? Because we also have to be aware of the context because we can't always get what we want too, because maybe there's, for example, an emergency room, Mm -hmm. punctuality is not going to happen in an emergency room, Mm -hmm. right? It's about who needs the most care not who showed up on time for their appointment. Right. <laughs> so, right. mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Can you talk about the different types of respect that yeah. y- you have an assessment that's mm-hmm. in your book, but it's also online and you um, help people look at the ways in which, you know, there's sort of different, what would you call them? what do you call them? Different, um, um, different forms, forms different behaviors. Yeah. And we have, mm-hmm. we tie, so So with the, so here's a, this is a bookmark that tells the seven forms right here. And Uh the seven forms are, uh, I like to use the acronym PICA, Uh P-P-I-C-C-A-A. And so it's procedure, punctuality, information, candor, consideration, acknowledgement, and attention. And so what um, we've learned is that people prioritize certain forms over other forms. They, um, that there are some forms that actually matter to you more than other forms. And there are so many different reasons for that. There's so many different, uh, we belong to multiple cultures, communities, identities at the same time. And all of those things are actually going to influence how we want to give and also get respect. Uh, it could be the generation that we grew up in. It could be even Pacific Northwest versus Mercy, you said East Coast, right? Mm-hmm. Difference England, there, right? right? In New England. In New England, New, yeah, New England, New right? That, right, that there's a difference <laughs> there. It could even be your birth order. It could even be your religion. There are so exactly. many different things. And also, it's not just that you, because you belong or that you identify as, um, because I'm Asian American, I'm deferential to my elders. It could be, I grew up with that and now I'm reacting to it. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So we can have an experience that we react in opposition to. Sure. Well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are the seven different, those are the seven different forms. And what we try to bring awareness around is, oh, what are the ones that matter to me versus the ones I think should matter to me? Interesting. Because we've all been socialized to do certain things, right? It's just like, this uh-huh. is what my parents taught me to do. This is what I was taught as respectful. But here's the so we have these three, the, they're the seven forms, and then there are the three dimensions to the, uh, the forms of respect. The first one is hierarchy. It's about acknowledging power dynamics. Who has more power, equal power, or less power than you? And that's formal and informal. The second dimension is give versus get. What we've yeah. discovered is there's a difference between how people like to give respect versus how they like to get respect. Mm-hmm. Not always, but there can be. So for example, 
Mercy, maybe you like to surprise people, but you don't like to be surprised. Right. Right. Uh (laughs) You know, when you think about that person who likes to give you unsolicited constructive feedback and tell you how to do your job, but when you do that to them and they're like, hey, you can do your job better this way. They're like, I don't like that. And then that last one is what matters to you? What actually matters to you? What matters to you so much, you will do it even if you know it doesn't matter to other people. Like for me, for example, punctuality is important to me because growing up, my mom was always like picking me up from school. And I felt a lot of anxiety waiting for her. Mm-hmm. And I felt the school staff was waiting with me. And I said, when I grow up, I'm not going to do that. Right. Punctuality is really important to me because I literally feel anxiety. Right. And so someone else could have that same experience and say, what's the big deal? My mom was late. Not a problem. Right. right. We can have different reactions <laughs> right. to the same experience. And, um, and so even though I have friends who are always going to be late, I still tell them I'm going to be late, even though I know they're going to come after me because it's actually mm-hmm. not about them. It's about me. That matters to me so much, you know, but then there are the things that like don't matter as much. Right. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the hierarchy component. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I haven't quite grasped that yeah, in yeah. terms of. Yeah, I can imagine, yes, yes. but I want to hear so, yes, you talk yes, about it. Yes. So in, I mean, in the workplace, but even, even in our personal lives and other places, power dynamics exist. And so the way that we want to, that we give respect and, and actually expect to get respect from people who have more power than us mm-hmm. can be different from those who have less power and those who, have, who are our peers. And so I'll give you a couple of examples. So there's the form of respect of acknowledgement. So that's praise, that's gratitude. And so maybe from my boss, I want to hear that praise. Oh, you're doing a really good job. But coming from someone who reports to me, mm-hmm. it may feel ingratiating. It may feel like they're sucking up to me, right? right. So it's like, uh-huh. why are you telling me that I'm doing a good job, right? right? And, um, and then we all have to make choices at times, right? Because like, because we have to prioritize. So for example, if I think about um, as a business owner, I have clients and I have vendors. And so clients are those who actually have more power because they have, I rely on that revenue to support my business. And then vendors actually, they rely on me. So I actually have more power than my vendors. So if I am going to be, there are two back-to-back meetings, right? Am I going to have a longer, and I'm, let's say I'm having a conversation with my client. Am I going to, they're going over, they're talking longer. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to end that meeting. I'm like, sorry, I have a meeting with my, and I have a meeting with my vendor. Right. Or am I going to say like, oh, keep going client. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Right. And so those, it kind of just explains the choices because sometimes people, otherwise people may say, oh, I'm being contradictory. And then for other people, they're like, no, no matter what, punctuality is important to me, regardless of the power mm-hmm. dynamics. Mm-hmm. Or I even right. remember there was one where it's just uh, someone who was in a very powerful position said, I, when I was very junior, people were always late to me. And so now I choose to be late to those meetings with my peers versus I will I will be more punctual to those who are who have less power than me than to those who have equal power because I remember what that was like. Like you know, and so again it goes back to the personal explanation. Mm-hmm. It doesn't dictate it, right? But it does influence it. And so how do we talk about it? 
Um, great. That's a, that's, a, and that's a really good explanation. And I think it makes it more clear to me too, how I think these three dimensions are aspects in which the, those, the forms of respect can vary for each mm -hmm. person. Mm -hmm. So we only have a few minutes left, but Julie, I'd like you to talk more about what your hope is with your book and about the work you do. I'm you know, assuming you consult with organizations mm -hmm. and you help bring this knowledge and about communication. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? You know, I dream that one day people are going to talk about their forms of respect, the way mm -hmm. they talk about love languages. Right. And just uh -huh. that it's even if they never read the book, that they will be able to help understand each other more and to understand that my perspective and the way I see the world is not the only way. And I want to understand how you see it. And I also want to talk about how I see it with you so that we can build more connection with one another. I do consult with companies and I help companies understand and articulate their culture through their forms of respect. So oftentimes people describe their company culture as, oh, we're innovative. They use these big lofty mission mm -hmm. words. And I think it's actually uh, more accurate if we describe the behaviors that are acceptable, right? Is right. it acceptable to multitask or not? Uh -huh. Is it, do you, do you CC everyone on all emails and give open access to, um, to all of your employees? Or is it information is transmitted on a need to know basis because it's considered more efficient that way. Right. Right. For people to be able to articulate that and understand that and to see that there are different levels. That's my dream that people, that this is a tool that will help people communicate better. Um, and that it'll help, it'll help organizations and leaders also uh, lead better as well right. and for people to learn to be more adaptive right and well, more understanding and more empathetic and more curious well I really I'm looking forward to sharing your work with a number of people I know who are involved in complex organizations and I can imagine the application of family businesses so I'm excited mm -hmm. about that Julie we're, it's time for us to sign off I want to thank you so much for coming today this is, I've been with Dr. Julie Pham. She's um, uh, an entrepreneur who's worked in a number of different fields with her entrepreneurship and the author of, an, of a new book, Seven Forms of Respect, um, and is a, an expert in community building and communication in diverse groups, uh, not only ethnically diverse groups, but also industry diverse groups. And I really um, encourage you to, to read her book, to look at her website, and um, to follow up with her work. Julie, I think what you're doing is very innovative, and um, I have a lot of respect for how you've gotten there, and both academically and in your, you know, the, the rigor of your intellect and also with your personal experience. Thank you for coming today. Thank you so much for having me, Marcy. Okay, thank you. This is Mercy Russell with the Wood, The Remarkable Relationship Show, and I look forward to talking with you next week.